do you become less afraid of conflict? How do you learn to defend an idea without getting defensive? How do you empower people without giving them so much freedom they choke themselves? How do you stay real and authentic as a leader? And what is power? Is it control or is it trust? These are big questions. And they're the questions I got to ask somebody who knows quite a lot about these issues. You're about to meet my guest on today's episode, Joel Peterson. Joel is the chairman of the board of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, as well as the chairman of the board at JetBlue Airways. He has served on more than three dozen boards over the past 45 years and currently serves on the boards of Franklin Covey and PacSize. He's also founding partner and chairman of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake-based investment management firm with $1 billion under asset management. And when he's not focused on running and advising businesses, Joel is busy teaching business and leadership at Stanford Business School. As you can tell, Joel's kind of a busy guy. I mean, he earned his MBA from Harvard Business School, got his bachelor's from Brigham Young, where he was also valedictorian and student body president. I mean, this man has lived 10 lifetimes in one, it seems like, and that's just his professional life. His personal life is just as extraordinary. Joel and his wife, Diana, have been married for over 45 years and have seven children and 25 grandkids. I had the pleasure and joy of meeting Joel several years ago when I was working at Stanford, and he made such an impression on me that I still remember that conversation as if it were yesterday, which is shocking because my brain is Swiss cheese these days. But I believe that every so often we have this moment where we meet someone that sort of radiates true wisdom, not the pithy sound by easy Facebook share kind of wisdom, but the real thing, enduring wisdom. Joel is exactly that kind of person. And I am thrilled to bring you our conversation about his wonderful book, The 10 Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Great Business. Get ready, you guys. It's a great conversation. And I hope you love meeting Joel as much as I did. I'll see you on the other side for a quick recap at the end. So we're already recording and I like to get it started ahead of time. But I thought we could begin by asking, to me, the part of your book that resonates the most with me, and your book is called The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds that Make a Business Great. The very first point you make in that book is about the law of integrity. And I feel like that word, Joel, gets used a lot. It's kind of like the word innovation. It's used so much that we sort of forget what it really means. Can you talk to us about what that word means to you? Why it's like number one on your list when it comes to trust? Yeah, well, I agree with you that it's overused and misunderstood. And typically it just means warm and fuzzy things. And really <laughs> what integrity is, has to do with the gap between what you say and what you do, who you say you are and who you really are, what you promise to deliver and what you actually deliver. So the narrower that gap gets, the higher the integrity of the person. And ultimately, we trust people based on their ability to deliver on promises. High integrity people are really pretty reliable. They really deliver on promises. Low integrity people don't pay a whole lot of attention. And they're often selling themselves as something they're not really. And you can't therefore trust them. 
Yeah, and I think people pick up on that instinctively. I think also, at least in my line of work, because I'm a communication coach and I help people give TED Talks and go on television, all those things. And one of the things that I think about when I think about integrity is making sure that the person that comes forward to the world, to the audience, to whomever, is the same person you are when you're with the people that you love or your friends, that you're presenting an integrated self to the world around you, right? And I think that really, as leaders, we really see that and we can tell when something's off, right? For sure. A lot of people have described what you just said as authenticity. You know, people who are who they say they are, you know, and you don't have to worry about this gap. And I think integrity has this integral, this notion of an integral life where your utterances and your actions are coincident. That's right. In fact, I saw an interview, a very old interview this week. My friend Marianne on Instagram posted it, and it was of Oprah Winfrey right when she was launching her show nationally. And she was in an interview, I think it was with Charlie Rose, and he said, but Miss Winfrey, what if your show isn't successful? And she looks at him as if he's got three heads, and she says, well, first of all, of course it's going to be successful, but if it's not, I am not my show. I am kind. There's other things in my life that I believe are important. And the way she answers that in, you know, 1980, whatever it was, it's kind of a preface. It's kind of the seed that then becomes the Oprah Winfrey. And I'm just curious from a leadership standpoint, what do you make of that definition of integrity where your whole identity isn't pinned on a stock price? It's pinned on something deeper. Yeah, I think that's something different from integrity. I think that It probably is, in some way, the integrity of being confident of who you are and feeling at home and at peace with that. And from that Mm -hmm. comes a sense of integrity. I think of it as a little bit different. I think that is a source of peace because you have integrity. People who have integrity, I think, are far more at peace. And that's probably what you're seeing in the Winfrey interview. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm actually curious, just looking at your career and how much you've done and how many roles you continue to play right now in your professional life and your personal life, what has given you that sense of strength and ability to be the person you say you are (laughs) and to have that sense of integrity? What's the secret? (laughs) Well, I think it's actually exhausting not to. I think people who maintain dual selves and are one thing, one place and another thing, another, I find that to be really tiring. I think it's much easier to be transparent and to not try to manipulate people. I think it's actually the easier, more peaceful way to live your life. I'm not sure I could say I admire people who are able to juggle a whole bunch of personalities, but, uh, (laughs) you know, some people do it and seem to do it quite well, but they fail in the authenticity scale. And they fail with integrity. And often when the chips are down, people don't trust them. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot in the news every day. Probably forever we'll see that in the news. But I was watching another interview as you were out promoting the book. And you said this quote that I just loved. You said, trust is more important than power. And I thought that's kind of a radical concept for, I think, a lot of people in business. Although they may say that they accept that. I think trust is more powerful or is more important than power is kind of a bold statement. You know, when you are out there talking, do you notice that people are like, "Ah, I don't know if I agree with that? Or what has been the reaction when you say that? Well, I think when you explain it, people do understand. I think really in some ways, 
trust is the most reliable source of power. If you think mm -hmm. about those to whom you give power are typically those you trust. You empower yeah. your doctor to do things because you trust them to be looking out for you. You empower your lawyer. You empower your accountant. It starts with trusting them. And so I think power can be either a source of guns or authority or corner offices or ability to give people raises or demotions, that kind of power, or it can be rooted in trust. And to mm -hmm. me, trust is the far more durable form of power. And the yeah. problem is that it's the old Lord Acton quote about, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The mm -hmm. problem is people who are trusted are given power and people who get power often diminish their trust by violating the power, by abusing power. It's kind of a dilemma. It is. And I think maybe our concept of what power is may be evolving right now because of that exact problem. And it may be moving away from power as control to power as empowerment, which is kind of the model that you point to. And I'm wondering, as you, because you do a ton of work with entrepreneurs and, of course, with students at Stanford and just throughout your life, I'm imagining you are in that not necessarily coaching role, but mentor role. Do you ever find that people feel like, well, I can't create trust and do this empowering thing because I lose control and I cannot lose control? Like, how do you help people do that dance between feeling like they're relinquishing control to people that don't deserve it <laughs> mm -hmm. and empowering the people beneath them. What advice do you have for people who wonder about that? Well, control is a bit of an illusion anyway. <laughs> Sometimes people think they have control and then when the chips are down or circumstances change or whatever, they all of a sudden find that they're not. I actually think that you actually increase your power by empowering others. Now, you have to do that in a smart way and that usually means that you empower them little by little until you understand that they are worthy of empowerment. But to me, expanding power throughout an organization increases everyone's power. If power is the ability to get things done, the ability to deliver on promises, on time, on budget, with deliverables as promised, that is real power. A lot of this nonsense that we're seeing in Washington, D.C., is people exercising a kind of power that doesn't get anything done. It's ego-driven, but no, there's nothing being delivered. So what is the point of that power? Yeah, it's so alarming, Joel. I feel like so many of us are watching that, and neither side is making any sense at this point. It's right. like, you know, the pendulum is going to keep swinging, and it does make me wonder, God, that's a whole other podcast episode, but it does make me wonder, like, at what point are we going to realize that kind of power is just unsustainable. It's like a house of cards and it just blows with the wind. One day it's right, next day it's left. And there the rest of us are in the middle. It's crazy. Well, you almost have to rely on the kind of brute force power and yeah. that swing back and forth. And that leaves everybody in the middle tossed to and fro. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's going to take somebody who is a real leader to be able to listen and understand both sides of issues and make reasoned judgments that are all things considered, taking things into account, making the best calls. There are trade-offs. You yeah. can't solve everything. You're making trade-offs and trade-offs are priorities. And I think having transparency with people 
builds trust. You may not yeah. like the decision. In fact, all, most of us have worked for people whose decisions we haven't always liked or supported. But if they're transparent and we know that they're well-intentioned, we can support them. We can move forward right. with them and keep going. And I think we need that. And so when I hear you talk like that, Joel, it makes me feel like there's some hope in all of this. Well, because I have to imagine that what's going to be birthed next out of all of this insane, extreme power pushing on one side or the other is there's got to be some kind of middle way where people from all different predispositions politically can just come to the table and work something out. Do you feel hopeful that that's a possibility? Well, I think ultimately, but the problem is the pendulum can swing pretty far. I know. Uh, as people stake out positions and I think things get wilder before they get better. I agree with you. And I want to like bookmark this because I have a question for you about focus and social media and attention spans. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But before we get too far off of field, because I could talk about this stuff all day long, I want to ask you about staying in a place of trust and empowerment when the pressure is on and the stakes are high. So for example, sometimes I'll be working with a client who maybe they've brought me in to work with this client because they're a little too emotional, let's call it. I call it the emotionality scale. Sometimes people bring me in because someone has a problem of crying in meetings when the pressure gets too intense. Or sometimes I get hired to work with a CEO who shouts when the pressure gets too intense. To me, all of those are on the same spectrum of emotionality. And emotionality has really negative consequences, in my opinion, on the people in the room. So I work with them to give them strategies for dealing with that. But let's say you're talking with me and we have somebody in the room who's a client who's a shouter. And you and I are trying to convince this person who's a shouter and a demeanor of people in meetings. You've got to trust. And let's say that person looks at us and says, what do you mean I got to trust? The pressure's on. The stock price is in free fall. These people are idiots. I can't trust them. What do you say to somebody in that moment? I would probably pull them aside one-on-one and ask them if they notice what the impact of their shouting is on people. And then I would listen. I find that when people raise their voices, I tend to lower mine. When they Mm -hmm. speak fast, I tend to speak a little bit slower and try to model something. And ultimately, if there isn't transparency, if there isn't trust, the wheels are going to come off at some point in time. And you've got to help people understand that. And I think you either make progress towards that end. And that's really the thesis of the 10 laws of trust is that you can be intentional about building high trust cultures. But it Mm -hmm. takes respect of these laws. These are the things that work. Or if you can't, then you get out. I don't really believe in operating through low trust environment. Now, there may be crisis situations when you just say, we've got to survive in the foxhole. But Mm -hmm. as soon as you can, you get out of them because nothing good will come out of low trust operations. You know, I've observed that and I wonder, you probably see this a lot too, but I get a lot of clients who are staying in very toxic low trust environments because there's a mission that they want to be a part of, especially with some of the most iconic tech companies in the Valley. It's very common to hear of the archetypal, brutal CEO who's just absolutely awful to his people. But the vision is so compelling that people endure it because they want the vision. They want to be part of building the dream and the vision. And I always tell people like, 
if you can hack it and that works for you, right on, get on that rocket ship to outer space and live your best life hitting that vision. But if you can't, you've got to move on. Why do you think people stay in low trust environments when they could be making a different choice? Why do you think they do that? Well, I think they trust that the vision is going to be achieved. I mean, they're putting their trust mm-hmm. and faith and time and money and energy and thought into trusting that that is going to be a reality. That is a trust. That is an expression of trust. And they're uh-huh. willing to put up with a bunch of behaviors that appear to violate trust because they trust so much. And a lot of our decisions we make in life are prioritizing one thing above another. There are very few yeah. things sort of purely 100% perfect. We're always making yeah. trade-offs. So I think they are trusting. They're just having to trust something that they're prioritizing as higher value than the things that are troubling. Wow, that's a great way of looking at that. That's really, really good. And one of the other concepts, another law that I just loved from the book is the concept of respectful conflict. Talk a little bit about that. I think a lot of people avoid conflict and feel that conflict is a bad thing. And actually, conflict is where people sharpen their arguments, refine their ideas, get rid of their bad ones. It's really a very health-producing thing. So you want to welcome it, and you want to make it safe for there to be conflict. The problem is conflict can turn personal. And and you can forget it's the issue that you're disagreeing over, and it becomes one of personality. And that doesn't achieve anything, and there's kind of no point in that. So I'd like to encourage conflict. And I think the best way to do that is for me to say, Bronwyn, let me describe to you what I'm hearing you say. Here's Mm. what I think you're saying. And for you to then get to the point you say, you've got it. That is a conflict smoother. We can then hear each other if I've actually captured what it is you're saying. So many times conflict go on forever and ever because we feel the other party just hasn't even understood what we're saying. So we speak louder. We speak faster. We get more frustrated. Whereas I think if you're saying this is respectful conflict, it is based in understanding. I love that. And I think it's true also that when you're willing to pause on making your argument to draw out and make the other person feel heard, even if you don't agree with them, just drawing it out and saying, have I got this right is I could not agree with you more. I do think, though, very few people have been taught to realize that their ideas and their positions are not their identity. And so when they have an idea or position that's quote unquote attacked or questioned, they feel it's coming right at the heart of who they are and they completely come unhinged, right? (laughs) How did you learn that you can respectfully draw out and understand another person's point of view without feeling like it's violating you as a person and your idea? I think one of the things you learn to do is preface your own ideas with something like, here's how I see this, or the way I'm looking at this problem is the following. Here's the trade-off I'm making. I used to ask when I was in the real estate business, what are the key bets? Because people would say this is a go or a no-go, or we got to do it this way or that way. I would say, well, what are the key assumptions? What has to be true for this to be right? And as they describe their key assumptions for this to work, every once in a while people say, well, shoot, I don't think GDP is going to rise at that rate, or I don't think we can lease mm-hmm. it in six months. You start having your conflict over the underlying assumptions rather than the conclusions. People who get out there with their conclusions too quickly and without prefacing it do make themselves mm-hmm. vulnerable. But I think if you preface it and if Got you it. describe it, here's what I'm assuming, and this is why I've come to this 
conclusion. Another thing that I've done over the years is when people have brought me a conclusion, an argument, I've said, what other things did you consider when you came to this conclusion? What other alternatives were, did you look at? And most times, early on in a relationship, they've not looked at anything else. They quickly oh, came wow. to their, and they said, well, I just was collecting the evidence for my conclusion. And that's really how people do things. They make a conclusion, and then they gather the data that supports it. Whereas if you ask and, them to say, what are the other alternatives you looked at, and why did you reject them? It forces them to then say, wow, there's a whole array that we ought to be considering. And that opens, in some ways, that's kind of building a high-trust organization. You're sort of saying, we're open to alternatives. We're open to innovation, creativity, dispute, different ideas. And that's healthy. That's amazing. I love that. I absolutely love that. In fact, I learned early in my career that one of my triggers, because everybody's got good communication habits and bad habits. And I noticed early in my career that my worst communication habits come forward when someone questions an assumption I have that I haven't taken the time to really get clear about. And I noticed that if I didn't do the homework of making sure my assumptions were sound, I would kind of fall apart when I would get questioned. Yeah. And I love framing that as just a way conversations happen forever in all situations that, look, I don't want to know just one idea. What were the other ones and why didn't they work? And why is this one the best? I think that is such brilliant intellectual training for anybody, really. It's good for an organization. It's a little bit this idea that fast is slow and slow is fast. I think in yeah. organizations, a lot of times, rapid decision-making that doesn't include others is really slow in the end because you get so much resistance. Whereas taking your time, laying out the assumptions, talking it through becomes really fast because the execution then goes quickly. Yes, right. God, it just makes so much sense. Let me ask you this. If for somebody who's listening who maybe isn't a CEO or isn't running a team of 20 people where they have a tremendous amount of quote unquote influence, one of the ideas I loved from Stephen Covey's famous book, the habits of highly successful people is he talked about spheres of influence and you do what you can where you can. Right. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this, let's say they don't have any direct reports, they're kind of climbing up in their careers. How do they embody these rules of trust, even though they're still new, even though they're still coming up as early leaders? Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I think the laws are the same for everybody. They're easier to see implemented when you're in a position of great influence, but everybody is in a position to deliver on their promises. Everybody is in a position to listen to others. Everybody is in a position to generate alternatives. Everybody's in a position to create trust in the little decisions. Mm. You know, there, there's a hundred little things that go on every day, and I think you can build connections. You can build trust. You can build reliability and all of those. So I think you just do that from the ground floor up. And pretty soon you'll find yourself trusted to do more. And then you just kind of build it a layer at a time, a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time. Now that line, a conversation at a time, I remember when you said that to me when I met you and it has stayed with me forever. I think about that across the spectrum of the roles that I play in my life as a mother, as a wife, as a leader, as a coach, all those things. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about the idea of one conversation at a time is it's about being present to whatever the situation is, whatever the conversation is, whatever the issue is. And 
I'm noticing, and maybe I'm just getting old and I, <laughs> I sound like what my parents sounded like when they were coming up, but it seems like attention spans are in such free fall, Joel, that I worry about people's capacity to embody that molecule by molecule, conversation by conversation, deep sense of presence to the little decisions every day, because I feel like our devices are training us to never be in a conversation moment to moment. Am I just crazy or are you feeling that way too? Or what's your reaction to that? No, I think you're right. And I think there are two things going on. One is we're in this fast-paced headline world where social media provokes us and the news cycle is so fast that we don't really have much time for any in-depth analysis. People take positions and that's that. I think the other thing is as we get older, we've seen a lot of movies. We know how they end. And so right. I, can, I can hear my child present something and halfway through the first paragraph, I know where they're going and why. So do I need to listen to the rest of it? That's the impatient self talking. The wise self says it's not about what they're saying, it's about what they're feeling. That's amazing. In fact, I remember when I came into your office, you had a picture of all your kids and your grandkids, which now I imagine that's changed significantly because it's been a few years. But I remember, remind me, Joel, how many children and grandchildren do you have now? I have seven kids and 25 grandkids. I mean, that is such a treasure. (laughs) Incredible, incredible treasure. But I remember you were going down the line. I asked you to tell me about your kids and a little bit about them. And you went down the line and each of your kids had this incredible life that they were living in very different ways. And I asked you, I said, what is the secret? And you went back to this one conversation at a time thing. And I remember thinking that can't be, I mean, this man is flying all over the place. He's, you're a busy guy. How did you come home from a crazy day at work doing a million things to sitting still and listening to your child tell you a story you already knew the end of? How did you do that? So I'm not sure I was dead, but I think a couple of things that I did always do is I always loved my kids. I was always Mm -hmm. crazy about them and I was more their cheerleader than their policeman. Mm -hmm. And I think they felt that. And so while you made fumble the ball occasionally or even regularly, there is something about that child knowing that you're a huge fan of theirs and you're there for them. And to me, that's love, you know, and people feel love. And I actually think a little bit like you said, well, who can trust trust when power is so present and everything? In some ways, people have the same notion about power or about uh, love, because I say Mm -hmm. love is the most powerful force in the world, but it's Mm -hmm. not the most immediate. It can be overwhelmed by hatred, by any number of things in the short run, but Mm really in the long run, and I think that's really how you raise a family, is it's a marathon. It's a long run, and you just have to keep in mind that it's a very long run process, and never draw the double line on a child. They're going to change, and you just keep believing in them no matter what. By the way, most of us had somebody who believed in us through moments when we shouldn't have been believed in. Amen. Amen to that. And I remember something else you mentioned And this goes back to empowering, which I love messages that work in all directions and all circumstances. So this trust message works in a corporate environment, a startup environment, a home environment. 
But one of the things I remember you mentioning is you really did empower your kids. Didn't each of your kids have to do some sort of endurance thing where it was like an outward bound type thing, but it wasn't like you coddled your kids. You expected them to be able to hold their own. Yeah. No, they each did outward bound. They each learned musical instruments and foreign languages and they've traveled and they've all worked. But Amazing. I always tell people when they say, wasn't it hard to raise them? I said, actually not. Once you kind of set the standard and you celebrate people doing great things, they tend to raise each other. I think that's, I think that is right. In fact, I got wind through the grapevine that one of my kids, I have three kids, one of my kids was getting a little cocky at school. My husband and I like immediately went into, you know, (laughs) it was like emergency meeting. We can't have an arrogant, like I can handle a lot of things, but having an arrogant kid would break my heart. So my husband and I are like, okay, clearly we're not being clear about what the standards are. So we had everybody sit down after dinner a week ago and we did our family values and our mission statement as a team. And we came up with integrity and hardworkingness and humility and all of these things that we all contributed. And my husband and I looked at our kids and we said, look, we hope you go to Harvard. We hope you go to Stanford. We hope you get married and have kids and all those things. But if you do any of that stuff and you're arrogant, we have totally failed. And I wonder in this environment where we're all on our screens and we're all moving so fast and we're all getting so-and-so to baseball and -and so-and-so to debate and speech, I worry that we're losing those pockets of together time to just recommit to what matters to us. Any advice for people raising young families right now in this environment? Well, kids will watch what you do much more than what you say. So you can sit and have a family meeting about something, but if you don't exhibit those things in how you behave, that's what they'll take away from it. And they'll also say you're inauthentic. You're mm-hmm. a hypocrite. You can't be trusted. I would rather solve for my children being kind, being happy, being hardworking than I would for going to Harvard or Stanford or anything like that. I agree. I agree. And yeah, that's true. It's what you're solving for. That's exactly right. Well, I think I just have one more question for you. And this next question I'm going to ask Joel, we can strike it from the record if it's too personal or too spiritual, but I wanted to ask it. And One of the things that has gotten me past some of my biggest fears and into what I think is my purpose in this life, which is doing the work I do on my podcast and coaching and teaching what I know about communicating, the thing that has gotten me through it is faith and my relationship to a higher power. And I'm curious, Joel, how big of a role has faith played in your trajectory? I mean, you've had an incredibly successful life on almost every metric that I can think of. And I just was curious as to what role faith played. So I think faith plays a huge role in everybody's life. Everybody has a faith. You know, even people who deny having faith, they may have faith in the political system or the power structure or faith in money or faith in whatever. But everybody, there's so much that's unknown. I'm making this up, but... 99% of all the things that we see and experience, we don't really fully understand. So we have to take a lot of things on faith. And it's just a question of which God do you believe in? Because I think everybody has one. So even the people that are the most 
hard atheists and deniers of having any faith have faith in their denial. And so, <laughs> so I think everybody does. So that doesn't really answer your question, but I do think it's important to just sort of say that we're all operating largely looking through glass darkly and trying to figure out what's it all about. So we're all placing our faith in something because we're acting without knowledge most of the time. The other thing that I've often thought is that you tend to collect the evidence for whatever your a priori notion is. And so if you have a belief in God, you will tend to collect a lot of evidence that there is a God and that his hand is in life and purpose and everything. People who then say they're going to deny that, they, they tend to collect a lot of evidence that there is no God. And I think you can measure the life. In fact, there's an interesting article by a guy who was a Harvard Medical School graduate. I've forgotten the name. I think it's something like the God question or something like that. But anyway, mm-hmm. he said that the difference in people who have those two faiths, those two different points of view, are in the happiness of their life, the contentment of their life, their ability to produce great things. He gives the example of Freud was one of them who I think was euthanized, and I forget who the other one was, but it was, oh, C.S. Lewis. So he compares Mm. Freud and C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist for much of his life, and he wrote this book, Surprised by Joy, which was a play on words. The woman he met was named Joy, and then he found a joy in faith, too. So, I love C.S. Lewis's story. I love his take on everything. Yeah. Well, so what you're saying so this is, will, is this will make yeah, it to the podcast, but there's a book that you should read of his that's little known. It's called A Grief Observed. Mm. It actually was never intended to be published. It was just his own musings and his own anger at the death of Joy. She passed away early from cancer, and he just couldn't deal with it. And so it's him lashing out and then reconciling. And it's really a very moving book. I have heard of that book, actually. And what's crazy is I had 2018 was a year of grief for me. I lost one of my best friends from high school and then my father three weeks later. And man, I studied grief in 2018. And I read everything I could get my hands on because a good writer will give words to what you feel inside and you can't quite articulate. And I can't believe that one got away from me because it was on my list. I need to read it. I just love everything he writes. Yeah, look it up. You'll like it. I love it. Well, Joel, I can't thank you enough. I want to respect your time. I think we've gone over a little bit. Thank you so much. Wow. Lots to think about. Since I recorded this conversation, a few things have gone down. First, the FBI entered center stage with the aptly named Varsity Blues Sting Operation, and we found out quite a few families have lied and cheated their kids' way into some pretty elite universities. And like all of us, I got pretty sucked into reading all about that. I couldn't help, as I was reading and listening and watching, I couldn't help but think about what Joel said to me about parenting. Don't solve for getting your kids into Harvard or Stanford or SC. Solve for kindness and integrity Or how about when he suggested that, you know, if I want my kids to behave in ways that make me proud, I have to first model those behaviors. Lecturing is easy. Living out those values is hard. I thought also of Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin and just how far they strayed from this kind of leadership. 
parental leadership. It's easy to sit in judgment of their behavior, but it's also incredibly easy to get trapped in that cycle of keeping up with appearances. It's easy to look at ways to cut corners and smooth the road for our kids so they don't ever have to experience life's big disappointments. But man, in the wake of that scandal, Joel's words ring truer than ever. The other thing that went down since I had this conversation was that I binge listened to a podcast called The Dropout. And if you haven't heard it, get on it. It is one of those podcasts that makes you profoundly grateful for the men and women who actually do real investigative journalism. It is riveting. And it is about the rise and fall of biotech company Theranos and its luminous CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. And if you're not familiar with them, she was the one that was on the cover of pretty much every magazine you can think of. Always wore a black turtleneck, red lipstick, wispy blonde hair, and usually holding her little device in her fingers. It was going to transform the way blood tests were conducted. The story behind her rise and fall and the company's rise and fall is not to be believed. She was celebrated as the next Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. She was also lying and she now faces prison time in a very high-profile trial for fraud. And as I listened to the podcast, I mean, my jaw was like dangling as I'm listening to every episode because you just can't believe, <laughs> you just can't believe the story. I kept hearing Joel's words again. Theranos was a company based on zero transparency, absolute secrecy, and bullying. Basically, the antithesis of the 10 laws that he writes about. And the thing about ideas like Joel's, the notion of trust and the 10 laws that go with it, they sound simple, almost too familiar, but it's often the simplest ideas that are the most enduring and the most powerful and the ideas that if executed, make the difference between building the next Apple and building the next Theranos. All this to say, you guys, I highly, highly, highly recommend spending some time with that book. And... I just recently found out that it's being reissued by HarperCollins this fall with 30% more content and stories from the front lines. You can find out more about the 10 laws by going to my newsletter. I have show notes. I have a recap of the highlights. I have a list of the 10 laws. And it's just such a great resource to have in addition to the blog, if you ever need, in addition to the podcast, if you ever need backup information. I send it out every few weeks. It's not spammy. So check it out. You can sign up for my newsletter at www.bronwyncommunications.com. That's B-R-O-N-W-Y-N, communications, all spelled out, dot com. And with that, I say thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for t- spending time with Joel and I. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time. <laughs>